Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is sponsored by Stamps.com and Viceland TV. a collect call from Edward Hayes. An offender at Caulfield Unit. This call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. Hello everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host Bob Ruff. And I believe that today we are breaking completely new ground in podcasting. What you're about to hear is a nearly one hour long interview with Ed Ace, an inmate at the Cofield Unit Prison in Texas. Rather than me try to break down Ed's case, in this interview, Ed walks you through the nature of the crime, how he was arrested, and what's happened to him since that incident. The prison phone system only allows inmates to speak on the phone for 20 minutes at a time. So there'll be a couple of interruptions, and we'll drop the ads in during one of those interruptions. But without further ado, I want to introduce you to Edward Ates. Hello, Mr. Ruff? Yeah, Ed, how you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you today? All right. How was the, the weekend? Yeah, <laughs> it was okay. Yeah, about as good as it can be, I guess. <laughs> I was here. <laughs> right. So do you do you have that? I know last week when we were talking, you said at 12.30 every day you guys, what, what did you say you guys have at 12.30? Like a camp? Yeah, they, they count at 12.30. Oh, a count. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, they count, count the unit. They shut down pretty much everything. Okay. It's just uh, it's a discretionary thing, however they want to do it. You know, some of them will come in and say, they want y'all to fall in there. Some of them don't say anything. All right. Well, we'll try to get, get this in. I'm sure I'm, I'm hoping to you know get our 20 minutes in and maybe get in a few minutes in after that. I kind of want to – some of the stuff I want to talk about today, like I said, we're going to kind of do this like an interview. Um, so some uh-huh. of the, the stuff we we already covered last week, but I'm just going to have you kind of covered again while it's recorded and everything. Um, right. So can you first of all just kind of kind of tell your story about what happened from your perspective like as far as you know what the crime was and how you ended up coming about being arrested to begin with I think the reason I got arrested because I had been arrested in Oklahoma when I was I was going to college at Oklahoma, at Oklahoma University and I got into a little uh, scuffle up there and that's where I really think they uh, pinpointed me 
me and my brother, we was over to my uncle's house cutting hair that day, actually. Are you a barber? Sir? Are you a barber? Well, no, I'm not a barber, but I learned. Been doing it for a long time. Okay. We've been cutting hair since junior high, high school. Anyway, we came in that day and seen a, like a little El Camino next door on the highway with lights flashing. We pulled up in my grandmother's driveway and just we went in the house to see what was going on. I asked her if she knew what was going on. We seen a car down there and she wasn't there. So we looked around. So we assumed she was next door because she knew the lady too, both of the ladies. So we went down next door to just to see if we could find out what's going on. It was a house burning because it was it was a fire marshal's car. Okay. We went down there. We we walked. We went down next door, and uh, we said, "Well, we finally found my grandmother." And uh, the lady next door, her name was uh, Johnny Pryor at the time. And uh, the lady that got killed, Eleanor Griffin. That was they were first cousins. She stayed in the trailer house next door. So when my grandmother then was coming out of there, and they said that they had called the police because she had found uh, her cousin dead in there. We, that's when everything, you know, we started looking at everything. Then my brother went next door, see if we could see what was going on. We stepped up on the stairs just to see if we could see, because the front of the house had a little stairs on it. was uh, like a little trailer house. We went up on the steps on the porch, and we looked in the door. By the time we got to the door, a sheriff's car was driving up, and that pretty much stopped us from doing anything there. We came out, and we hung around for a little while. We went back up to the house, and it got dark. And they started questioning me about my grandmother, the lady next door. And, uh, what was her name? Kiria Jackson. All of them showed up and wanted to talk to you about. Uh-huh. And so later, later on, about 1130 that night, they came up and talked to me. Wanted to talk to me, knocked on the door, and I answered the door. Me and my family was at the house, me and my brother, a couple of friends, and my grandmother, who was at the house. And it was a t- Detective Hugo and a Bobby Gorman and Jason Waller. He started knocking on the door. As for me personally, I'm, I don't I don't know why. Well, so I, first of we, all, before we go much further with this, just kind of to give everybody kind of the layout of how this was set up. You do I understand right? You guys lived like one door down from Miss Griffin. Uh, exactly the next door, right up on the hill. Okay, we stayed stay next door. And you lived uh, with your grandmother there. Yes, I did. Okay, and so did they when they came to the house and asked for you that night. This was the night. Just a couple hours after they found her body? After they had found her body. Okay. Did they take you into custody or question you, or or what did they do that night? They questioned me a little bit there, and then they said, well, we want to go back to the office and talk. Uh, that's not a problem. We want to, we have some uh, reports about you breaking into a store down the street. And I was like, breaking into a store? He said, well, we just want to talk more with you uh, at, the, at the office in depth if you just go to the office with us I was like go to the office with you for what they wanted me and my brother to go my brother refused I was like well I said hold on just a minute let me uh, talk to my mother and ask her see what's going on so she wanted me to stay this, I stayed there till she got there and then we both went with them in the uh, in their car to the police station you and your mother we got to right okay we went with uh, Dale Huckel and Jason Waller Bobby Gorman and another officer followed them all the way and was like it wasn't no big thing. We went in there and talked to him. He asked me, did I have any, uh, did I have any relationships with the woman? I was like, what do you mean, relationship? Yeah, did we have, did we talk or have we had any sex or anything? I asked, why, why would you ask me something like that? What do you mean? So my mama just told me to answer the question. I asked her, I told her no. He asked me, how did I know her? I told her she'd come by every day when she get off from work and she ate dinner at my grandmother's house. It was her and my aunt. My aunt would get off from work and come there and she'd get off from work and come there. 
But then he asked me, did I have any visible scars on me, any scratches? And so I told him, no. He said, could they look at me without my T-shirt on? So he took, I took my T-shirt off, uh, showed him my front of my shirt, my chest, and my back. I didn't have any scratches on me. And uh, they, I didn't. I pulled my pants, my shorts. I had on shorts. Let him see my thighs and my legs. And then he wanted to look at my shoes and everything. So he looked at my shoes, and then they scraped something. Some, they're like dirt off the bottom of my shoes. So my mom said, what are you doing? He said, well, we're just taking this off and seeing what this is on here. She said, they're brand new tennis shoes. What, what can be on them besides dirt? Okay, when they um, when, when they asked you to take the, to see your shoes and scrape anything off, did they, or did they like photograph or put into an evidence bag or anything like that? Like, how did that go down? He took like a little plastic bag, a little plastic bag, something like, I don't know if it was, it was like a Ziploc bag. And he scraped off whatever it was in there, and it looked like dirt to me. But uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, it wasn't a big thing. I gave him both shoes, and he gave my shoe back, and I put them back on. And like I said, he took a picture of me with my shirt on, uh, front and back, my legs, but I didn't have no scars on me. Then he put took a picture of me with my clothes on. Did they take pictures of you? I don't know if I mis- misheard you. Did they take any pictures of you with your shirt off? Yeah, they took a picture of uh, the front of my chest and my back to see if I had any scars. They took those two pictures, and they took two pictures with me with my shirt on. And then at that point, did they let you guys go home? Yeah, they took us home. They took us home probably about, they were just stalling us. I got up and I asked her to use the bathroom. He said, yeah, they took me to show me where the bathroom is. I went to the bathroom, and the guy, after I came, I was in the bathroom. I was using the bathroom, and I washed my hands. And then uh, I remember, uh, what's this? Detective Waller, he came in the bathroom behind me. So I looked at him. I was like, what are you doing? He was just standing there, and I walked on out because I was through. I washed my hands and face and dried them off. And he came back to the office. with uh, I had put a, a jolly wrench in my mouth. That's the can that I was, I was eating. That's what I always ate anyway. He, he took half, uh, about two jolly rancher papers and some more candy papers that I didn't have. He took those in there. He put those in the bag. I was looking at him. My mom, my mom asked him, what are you doing? What is that? He said, oh, uh, your son put a piece of candy in his mouth, and, th- and we found Jolly Ranchers and sparkling peppermint uh, candy at the, at the scene of the crime. And I said, my mom said, well, okay, what does that have to do with him? Well, he said, it was just, just a candy wrapper, and we're going to check him. Okay. So... Did, now, had yeah. you had you ever been in? I, I know you said you were you were friends with uh, Miss Miss Griffin because she came to your mm-hmm. house every night for dinner. Had you ever been in her house? Yes, I've been in her house a few times. She had a wasp nest in the back room of her house, or like some bumblebees. Uh-huh. They had a big nest back there. She had called me down there one day. when she called my grandmother? She never would ask me nothing. She would ask my grandmother. Uh, would she send me down there to do certain things? And I go down there, and I went down that day. She had wasps back there, and we had to go get some pesticide, and we sprayed the, the, the bumblebees in her back bedroom. They were in a closet, and we got all those and killed those out. Um, I had washed her car a couple times for her, detailed it. I had mowed her yard for her a couple times. Uh, I did a few odd ends for her, you know. It wasn't nothing major. It was just a trailer house. And I was, I was doing work for her cousin right next door. I painted her house, uh, mowed her yard, her yard and everything for her. She had a son, too, but... You know, he was kind of, you know, he was a gay guy, so he didn't really, you know, well, we knew he was gay growing up, and he didn't really do nothing, you know, no, no boy things growing up. Right. But they would always, they would always ask me to come and do stuff, me or even my brother. My brother wouldn't go, but I would go down there because she paid me all the time, so I'd go. They tried to, you know, 
they tried to make it seem like uh, I had did a job and she hadn't paid me, and then I went down there and was trying to get money and everything from and all that stuff too. It was. It sounds like she was. I mean, would you describe her as a as a family friend? Yes, she was. My, she was actually. She was my grandmother's friend, really. You know, she was just somebody who stopped by every day. My grandmother was just like one of. Those, she was an old person. She cooked every day. She gonna cook three meals a day, and in between, uh, she's gonna cook in between those three meals five <laughs> times a day and have something there for everybody when they come by. You know, and my aunt would get out from work every day, and she would come by there and eat dinner before she go home to cook dinner for her family. And she would start stopping by, and she was doing the same thing, but she didn't have any uh, uh, kids or anything down there, and her cousin stayed next door, so she come there when she get off of work, eat, sit there and talk to my grandmother, maybe an hour, hour and a half, and she go on home, which is right next door. Right. So, um, did you, so after you got back home, after you left the police department, did they, uh-huh. like, what happened from there? Was the next thing that happened, you got arrested, or was there more investigation they, in between there? Well, when they took us home that night, he just pulled up in the driveway, and uh, we got out of the car. We came in the house, and then my mom talked, and my mom and my grandma and uncle had came down, and my brother was talking about what was going on. And they pretty much, we, everybody had pretty much let it go because it wasn't nothing, you know what I mean? We was just, everybody right. was just kind of just kind of shocked because the woman got killed next door. Right. And we pretty much let it go. And the next day, everything, you know, was pretty much back to normal. You know, I worked. I had a job. I was working down the street at this little ranch down there. We was working for this, uh, it was a horse ranch, me and my brother. And we went to work the next day. And it, it was nothing ever said about it. 30 days later, they came. That's when they came and arrested me. In between that 30 days, they came down and uh, they wanted to, they wanted to search my room. Search, just look around in my room. So my grandmother told him no, but I told her, I said, Come on, it ain't no big thing. I mean, it's just, they just said they're going to my room. I asked him, Y'all just going to my room? He said, Yes. So I let them go in my room. They looked all through my room. It was on a, a matter of fact, on a Sunday, my uncle was down there. My uncle used to work with this goddamn Eucle. They came in and searched through the house, <clears throat> searched through my room. After they didn't find anything, they finally went on their left. They questioned me a couple more times. Took me back up to the courthouse, and then him and this other lady came down. A lady named Melanie McKay was Dale Hugo. Uh, they took me up to. They wanted to talk to. They talked to me in my front yard one day, and she was like, "Well, we know you did it. Uh, why don't you just go ahead and confess this, this, this?" I was like, "What do you? What do you mean? Like, you know, I did it." Talking about, we got this evidence and all this stuff here. They said they had my semen. They had hairs that they had found from me on the scene. They had my semen in the bed and on the woman, and it's only going to be a matter of time. Before they uh get their uh, report back and everything, and they're gonna get arrest warrant and all this stuff, and then thirty days later they arrested me and put me in jail, and that's what they charged me with. But the they from what I saw in the case file, they did find blood and semen on the right. bed, the scene of the crime. But uh, right. that actually didn't come back as a match to you, correct? No, it was her. It was uh, her boyfriend actually who was there every night. Every night, it was on a Thursday night when this happened. He, it was his, and it, he was there every Thursday, every Thursday night. He would spend the night with her, except for this certain night, they say, but he was there that night, too. Because, you know, my grandmother was there. My grandmother was kind of, you know, she old, she kind of knows how old people are. Right. She'd sit up in the window, sit in the window all the time, know everything was going on. And he was there that night, too, you know. He said, he, he said he wasn't there, and then they went and checked his hours at work. And where he was at work, you know, the time loops over from like 12, uh, 11, 11 o'clock, uh, at, at night to 12 in the morning. 
And that's the way his job switched over that night. He said he said he left the job and he went straight home. But his and, and uh, some some girl he had staying with him. She said that he had been doing this, but he didn't come straight home that night. You know, it was just they just they just blew it off once they had me in jail. I mean, it wasn't really nobody else to investigate for them. Well, I need to get me. I need to get hold of the police file because I've looked at the court files and. I see in there where they had like had a statement from him where he said exactly what you said. Every Thursday night at eleven o'clock, he would go visit his his girlfriend. Yeah, but he said he didn't uh-huh. that night and he went home. But there is nothing else in that court file that says that they investigated that. That they like. I'm assuming at some point did the police talk to your grandmother and she told them that he was there that night. Yeah, she, she talked to them and my grandmother told them that I was at home that night. You know, they said, "Well, that's just your grandmother." She's going to say that anyway. You know, and that's, I mean, like I said, that's as far as it went. He testified to that. He was in court and he said that, but you know, like they had, a, they had three or four guys who they said that she was, uh, you know, going with, have or having relationships with, you know, three or four dudes that they had talked to. <clears throat> but he was the main one that was there. And he, like I said, he was there every Thursday. He would spend the night there and go to work there. So in no. court, he testified, he admitted that he was there that night at 11 o'clock? He said that he wasn't there that night. Oh, that they he kept wasn't? Him on, they talked to him, I think it was like, it might have been five, six minutes, and then they released him and let him go. Wow, and so now you had said, just to clarify to everybody, uh, you had said that it was a match to him. What they had, they didn't do a DNA test, right? They did just a blood type analysis of the blood and semen? Yeah, they did a DNA test on me. Now, what they did to the the semen and everything, I don't I don't really know. All I know is Tom McClain, Clifford Rovers told me that they had checked the blood and the semen and hairs and none of that matched me. Because you know, they said they were gonna they was charging me with capital murder and all this because I raped they said I raped and killed and murdered the woman and all that. Yeah. I, th- came. I think the They only uh, did the DNA test. Yeah, and see I never saw any results of a DNA test. I saw that they took the blood and semen that were found on the bed uh, they uh-huh. tested them and proved that uh, the blood type did not match you or Miss Griffin. Right. So that would mean, you know, the the semen, I could see how maybe they could have an argument that if it was her boyfriend's or whatever. But right. the blood, there was blood there that was not hers and was not yours. Right. But they'd only right. tested a blood type that they hadn't run it through the DNA database. They just They just tested the blood type and... The document says that you and Elnora were excluded from being the donors. It could not have come from either one of you. Right, right. They, see, she had cooked. They, uh, the, the meal that they had found on the stove that night, the chicken and rice, there was two people set up and they were having dinner that night. And that's what, that, that's what, that's where it come about where they was trying to figure out who she was there with that night. And the woman had told her that, you know, I think, I think Hubie Jackson had told him I think she had told him that he was there too every every Thursday night, but he wound up telling him anyway that he used to be there on Thursday night. Right, and and Kubia is the one that it was. Um, I think was kind of devastating in your case as far as what happened at trial because she testified, if I was reading the documents correctly, that she had called Elnora that night, and right. she said that Elnora told her, "I'm just sitting here talking to Edward." Right, I'm sitting here talking to Edward. I was like, "What?" And I, I, I was, I was just saying, I was, why would she even say something like that? Cause she, I mean, I knew her. She knew my mom. Uh, her and my mom went to school, you know. 
and I was I was really good with all of these ladies. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, I, I was just doing kind of like just you know handiwork around the house. I paint anything to make some money. I was young, <clears throat> just trying to have some money and have a little money in my pocket to run around and stuff. You know, we didn't do so much of that. Just go to the club and stuff like that, and have fun. But I was just trying to have some money in my pocket, and they wanted they were just getting their jobs done uh, really free, cheap. You know what I mean? Right. And not paying for not paying full price for them. Paint the whole house and uh, charging three hundred dollars, you know, something like that. That's what I was doing. And then, how did you know Kubia? She was just another friend of your mom's. You have one minute left. I knew her. Well, I've been knowing. I knew her daughter. I knew her, but I knew her daughter more than I knew her. The daughter was a little younger than me, and she tried to talk to me a couple of times. You know, she was really a little younger than me, but I knew Kubia just from around the neighborhood. Okay. You know, uh, Ed, when this when this hangs up on us, you want to call me right back? Yeah, I'll call you right back. Okay, I'll just let you go now because it's gonna get to disconnect us here in a second, and I'll wait for you to call back. All right, I'm gonna go right now. Okay. Bye. The caller has hung up. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, this is a collect call from... Edward Hayes. An offender at Caulfield Unit. This call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. Okay, I'm back. All right. That was a little quicker than last time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one thing I want to do, I'm, I think I told you I'm going to be going back to Tyler uh, in like three weeks from now. And when I was looking uh-huh. through your file, there's a transcript in there from the interview with Kubia with, I believe it was Lieutenant Waller. And I want to go through and pull yeah. that again because we've got some other cases that he's involved in, too, where he's kind of manipulated testimony. So I kind of want to see how that conversation went down. Right. But I, I want to get into more of the the evidence they used to to convict you with because basically the only evidence they had against you was a bunch of hearsay. I mean, there was didn't you say that you had left at some point and went to your girlfriend's house or some girl's house in an apartment? Uh, right. And somebody yeah. said they saw your her vehicle there with you in it? Right. It was some guy. I don't know where they got this guy from. You read the report and you see this guy. I don't know. Who, I don't know the guy. He said that he, he uh, he was sure that he, he, he said he saw uh, a car that looked like the car that they seen. And he said that he was pretty sure that he saw me get out of the car at my girlfriend's apartment. Then they showed him a picture of the car. Then they showed him another picture of the same car. He said he could identify which car it was. And they were both the same car. I mean, the guy, I don't know where they got this guy from. He kind of seemed like he was, a, he was on the, on, on, 
kind of retarded to me, you know. Uh-huh. They really make it look silly up there. And I don't think anybody really believed him, you know. They were laughing at him in the courtroom, you know, but. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was pitiful what they, what they had got to use. And they were trying to say that I drove this little bitty car. She was a tiny little thing, right? Wasn't she, she was under five foot I tall. Was, I think she was like four feet something. Yeah, and you're not a tiny little guy. No, I'm six foot six. Right. Yeah, you're <laughs> significant. And I think that was part of the what they tried to use at trial was that her car was parked behind her house and the um the right. seat was pushed all the way back. Right, pushed all the way back. Okay, the car was parked by parked on the back of the trailer house and it was so close to the trailer house is what they were saying. They were showing how where it was and how close it was. Nobody could have got out of the car on one side, on the on the driver's side. You know what I mean? Yeah. They tried to say they tried to say it was a footprint, big footprint on the on the uh, driver's side of the car, where whoever was in the car that got out of the car. But it, it's not possible. When you look at the picture, you'll see that it's not even possible for anybody to get out of the car on that side, except for somebody her, uh, her side, small like her, especially me. I know I couldn't have got out of there. Yeah, because you're, uh, I think you told me you're about six foot six, 300 pounds ish. Right. Right. Were those photos of her car presented at trial? Right. They were presented at trial. I'm going to have to go, I'm going to have to pull that evidence box again when I go back in a few weeks because I don't remember in the evidence box any photos of the car. Like there was just, all the photos were of the crime scene inside, but I don't remember seeing any photos of the car or anything like that still in the box, which is kind of strange. they didn't have many. They had them. They had a bunch of pictures that they had took that they, I don't even think they admitted here. Okay. They even had admitted in evidence. I wonder if some of them didn't get admitted. Um, because, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. So there was, they ended up saying that the stuff they scraped off the bottom of your shoe, that that was human feces. Uh, right. And, they supposedly ran that through a lab somewhere and determined that and had it tested and they said that it was human, but they couldn't identify who it came from. I want to see kind of the chain of custody for them. Like where, where do they go from scraping something off the bottom of your shoe and maintaining that chain of custody that that's actually where that came from. But, but furthermore, they had all these ways that they could have, if it was legitimate, that they could have determined whether that was hers on your shoe because they said in the reports that uh what that you know she had defecated throughout the crime scene which is not uncommon when someone's being strangled or or pressure on their neck and they said that there was a shoe print in one of the uh, piles of feces and then a smudge mark like i think they said the kitchen floor from you know the the killer stepped in it and then stepped in the on the kitchen floor and they had your shoes and then they're also right. saying there's a footprint outside of her car. Like it would have been right. simple enough to show whether or not that was your footprint yep. in that. And they never did that, did they? They never did any of that. I think you'd also said that they determined that the feces that was supposedly on your shoe came from her because they tested, what was it, the enzymes or something in it and determined that it was the same food that was on the stove at her house that night. That's something like what they, what they said, what the, what the man, uh, some kind of specialist they had up there, they said, he said that he, 
he determined that it was of, of human origin. That's all it really that he said. I said, that's what they was trying to test for to see if the chicken and rice that she had up there was that. And the detective Waller told me that uh, when they tested the human feces, that's what was in it was the chicken and rice on the stove. And I was, I was trying to tell you, I was telling you that it's not possible. Well, I don't know once they do it. He said that whatever she defecated out, that's what that was. But if that meal was ate right then, there is no possible way that you can defecate it out right then. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Just a, I don't an hour so. later. It's, you got too long to travel through the through the body for that. Yeah, and and see, there, there's I I've watched some recorded interviews that uh, this particular detective, along with um, some Tyler City detectives, have conducted, and they're I mean it, it it's a, actually illegal for them to misstate facts like that in an interview. You know they they can't right. they can't tell you. We tested this and this happened. It's, it's, they're, they're not allowed to do that, but that doesn't seem to be a rule that they follow. I mean, obviously that test didn't have the, the expert didn't testify to that effect at trial, did he? No, he didn't. <clears throat> he didn't at all. And see what had happened actually, they were, my grandmother had an open sewer line right on the side of the house. When you go there, you'll see where it was. And I'm sure my mother, she stayed there. She'll just show you exactly. Well, that night when they came up to the house, they, uh, the, uh, what's his name, uh, Bobby Gorman, he was the detective too. They were coming up to the house and he had stepped in the sewer line. It was on the side of, like, if you, if you come up there at night, it's, a, it's like right on the side of my grandmother's house and it's through her garden down there. Okay. It was the open sewer line. It's the open sewer line right there in the country. Okay. Right there where we stay at. And it runs from my grandmother's separate tank all around the house. If you're not paying, a, if you don't know when you're walking, that's what you're going to do, step in it. And he stepped in it too. He said the same thing. He said, this is probably the same shit was on my shoe. That's that, what he said at the, at the, uh, at the interview that night. Okay. He had to go change his feet, shoes and socks and everything. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. They don't mention that in the, uh, in no, their, they didn't in their notes at all. And then they didn't, uh, I'm trying to think. So they, they took it off your shoe. They didn't, right. they didn't test. And then, okay, the car. So then part of their narrative was, that you had taken her car that night and went to visit your girlfriend right. after you had just supposedly murdered this woman. Did they pull any of your fingerprints or anything Nothing. off of her car? They didn't pull anything off the car. They said they tested it. They said they tested everything. They took some candy wrappers. They said out of the car. They tested everything. They said they tested the car and everything, and it wasn't any human feces in the car. It wasn't any fingerprints on the car anywhere. Nowhere. Not one single fingerprint? Not one fingerprint that they left for me. Everything was her fingerprint. They didn't take anything from me there. Okay, so th that's that's significant. So her finger, so it's not like somebody wiped every fingerprint off the car. Her fingerprints were in the car, but no one else's were. Right. The car, they said the, the car didn't appear to be white. A guy, some, another detective got up there and said that the car didn't appear to be wiped off or anything because it had her fingerprints all over it and on the inside of everything. They said that uh, I had been, the reason they knew I had been driving the car is because the car was on a radio station, KZY, which played rap music. You know, it was kind of stereotype music. That's what I listened to, rap music. <laughs> they, okay, and, and the woman listened to gospel most of the time, and that's what, that, that's what station that was. It's the only black station in town, and they played gospel. And that's what they just, I just associated, associated me with that thing. 
it was on KG. Why? Because they play rap music. Are you fucking kidding me? They actually did they actually use that in court? They, they actually used that. They they <sighs> detective Dale Hugel said that. Wow. <laughs> the radio station was on KZY, and they mostly play rap music. My That's God. exactly what he said. Jeez, I, I mean, I understand. I know this isn't funny. It's just disgusting to me the the stuff that <laughs> this department has done. I mean, that one that one might take the cake. But so they they're claiming that so it was a Thursday night when she was murdered. She was found right. on Friday evening, and that's the night they took you into the police station and took the scraping off the bottom of your shoe. So we're talking about 24 right. hours after the murder happened. Right, right. And I still have had human feces on my shoe. Right. A pair of brand-new tennis shoes, $140 brand-new tennis shoes. You probably avoided that septic line with your brand-new shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, when, you, when you're young, you don't want nothing on your tennis shoes. The only time I had my tennis shoes on were in the daytime to show them off. Right. I had these on. Because <laughs> I, I had spent a whole check on these tennis shoes. Uh, you know, they're still in that box, so if we're able to get you out of there, I'll make sure you get those back. They are still in that box. Yep, I I had them in my hands just a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, but you know how, I don't know what they've done to them, but they were brand new when they took them. They still look brand, brand new. They're, new. They're vintage now. You could probably get a pretty penny on eBay for them. They said that they had did all these tests and destroyed them. They said one of the shoes were already destroyed, and they just had the one that the feces was on. They're full oh, of shit. My assistant sitting across from me, Mike, weren't both shoes still in the box? Still in the box yeah, they were both still in there. <laughs> You're still all good. <laughs> uh, but, but what, you know, what I'm getting at too is so there's a 24 hour time period and the feces is supposedly still on your shoe, but they're also saying right. that right after the crime was committed, that you got into her car and drove across town and got back into it and right. drove it back. But there was no feces on the pedals, nothing like that anywhere in the car. Nowhere. But it, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're getting, I'm getting at how ridiculous this is. Right. Yeah. It's a story. It's a side show for real. Yeah. Well, you, you should be happy at least to know that when we were in court going through your file, the, the clerks there actually didn't even charge me for all the copies that I made because they said that they all thought you were innocent. Back then, when you went back through, like so even the people in the court uh, that worked yeah, everybody, there, everybody thought I was going home that day. I it, knew I know a lot of people that worked there. You know, at the court, I grew up with a lot of those people. You know, some of those people I went to school with. I went to Chapel Hill High School. Mm-hmm. A lot of those people I went to school with, and I knew a lot of them. You know, right? Yeah, they 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 still. I mean, when I told them what I was doing, they were willing to do anything they could to to help out. I mean, everybody that was over there. So after, now, d- didn't you say they also had collected scrapings that they had, like, defensive wounds and scrapings from under her fingernails? Right. They said they had all, they had her hands bagged up because they said that they had whatever skin or whatever they had got from under her fingernails, they had, they had caught it in the bags and they were testing that and all that stuff. They had pictures of her in court and they were showing the reason they had her hands, uh, bags on her hands to get everything that she had in her hands at the time. From the, from the team when they found them. So, they but they, told me they, had, they had my skin and everything under her fingernails and all of that. But they never actually did any kind of DNA testing on any of the, not the, not the blood, not the semen, the hair, the scrapings from under her fingernails. They never DNA tested any of that, correct? 
I never go. Uh-huh. They took all of that from me. They took all of that from me, but they never, uh, as far as I know, never did anything from her. I don't see. I didn't see it in any of the paperwork that I had. Yeah, and I didn't either. Where they had the only thing I saw again was that blood test where they just are they on the blood and semen or they just a blood type analysis. But you know that's kind of telling. It's kind of telling too because I mean you had a mistrial your your first trial, so right they they tried, they tried to get me to they tried to get me to take ten years. He told my uh, lawyers, Tom McLean, uh, go and call call Ed and ask him, will he take ten years in uh, the Department of Criminal Justice? And uh, he'll be he'll be getting out in uh, three years because we'll give him time credit for this. And if he just cop out to this, that way we won't have to go through another trial. And do you, I mean, they actually came and asked me. They actually asked me this without taking. So, I asked them, were they crazy? So that was while between the two trials, they offered you a plea where basically you would just have to go in for three years, and you turned them down. They offered they offered me a plea while we was while while the jury was deliberating the first trial on the second day, and then once we got once the jury hung up and they had the mistrial, uh, they had offered me a deal two more times. Oh wow, while I didn't know that. On, yeah, while we was waiting on the next on the next trial. So they offered you a plea while the jury was deliberating. While the jury was deliberating. Wow, because I know that while how they were delivered. How long did they deliberate? They three days. That's I I knew it was a while. I saw in that file is all the notes the jurors were sending back and forth to the judge. So what yeah, what the did judge, they, Sorry, go ahead. The judge dynamited. He dynamited the jury, and then he turned around. You know, he dynamited the jury, and uh, he told them they wasn't. They just told them that they weren't going to leave until they came up with a, a, a guilty or not guilty verdict. And they still stayed in there another three, four hours. And he, he called them out again, and he read the Allen charge again. I guess my lawyer said he read it in extensive, and this is the second dynamite. And he said this is really unheard of, you know what I mean? Right. Nobody dynamites, nobody dynamites the jury twice. He, and uh, he was saying he's forcing them to go in there and uh, find you guilty. Right, and they like, never did that first doing? time. They never did the first time. So what was the they deal? What was the deal they offered you while the jury was deliberating? Ten years. That's what they offered me ten years. See, okay. first when I went to jail, when I went to jail the first time, they offered me four. They offered me forty-five years, two weeks after I was sitting in jail. I said forty-five years for what? And I told so. I told the lawyers, I said, "Man, I don't want to talk to you, leave." I said, "I don't want to talk to either one of y'all." They said, "Yes." So I pushed the button and I got up and I walked out of there. I said, "I need to take me back to my jail cell." And that's when I called home. I called my mother. And my grandmother told them what was going on, that they offered me 45 years. And my mom came to see me. She said, well, baby, listen to me. I want to tell you what's going on. Uh, they came over there, and they did that because they wanted to see if you were guilty. They were sent, oh. they were sent to you specifically. They were sent to you specifically to talk to you to see if this was going to go. My grandmother had been working for She had worked for a judge, uh, one of the city figures in Tyler, just about all their life. She had raised him and his wife. His name was Joe Clayton. Uh-huh. And she raised she raised him, and he was the judge at the time. That was the court. That was the that was the courtroom that I was in. But he reaccused himself because he knew me, which I knew him. You know, we right. kind of grew up with his, grew up with his boys. We used to be over there all the time. My grandmother would take us over there because she worked for him, and we would play with him and you know swim and stuff. And he reaccused himself. Well, I I don't know how I got two two uh, lawyers. They said that. Uh, it's been unheard of for a person to get two lawyers, but I got two lawyers, and they said that he assigned them to me, but I don't know. You know? 
And they were court appointed attorneys. Like they were court appointed. They said that he court appointed both of these uh, lawyers specifically for me. Okay. But you know, I don't, I don't know. So once you were, they they offered you a plea. You turned them down. The jury was hung. You said you offered. They offered you a couple more deals while you were out before the second trial. Wow, wow, right. I was staying in Dallas with my wife at the time. We was we was married. We had we had just bought a house and everything. And we were staying there going to work at the time, and they was offering me deals there. Yeah, they would call me back for Dr. Call. They, they, I bet you they called me for Dr. Call, I bet you 60 times within the next two, within the next year. You have one minute left. Within the next year, back and forth, they would call me. And that's what they, every time I get there, it was something. They would call me. They were trying to violate my, my uh, bond conditions or something. Right. Hey, uh, you got time to call me back one more time? Right, I, I do. I'll call you right back. Okay, I'll let you go. I'll talk to you in a minute. The caller has hung up. It fucking makes me sick. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, I'm back here. All right. What I was leading up to is, so they were obviously having a hell of a time getting you convicted and they had all of this DNA evidence, all this, this, they had blood, they had semen, they had hair, they had scrapings under fingernails. It's really telling that if they really wanted their conviction and they really thought it was you, all they had to do was run that stuff through the lab, have a DNA test done. They already had your DNA on file and they would have had the proof they needed to convict. And and it's obvious that they never probably even thought that you did it. Otherwise, they would have tested it. I mean, they they had to know they if they tested it, it was going to destroy their case. I think they tested it and 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 just they found out it wasn't mine, and they was just trying to figure out what to do next. And and they just had me, and they was going to give me. That's that's where that's the solution I came up with. I I wouldn't. it wouldn't surprise me one bit, just knowing what I know about that system there. So then they eventually, you said they were trying to violate your bond conditions. They eventually did violate your bond while you were in Dallas, right? They, they violated my bond while I was in Dallas. Um, I was picked up. Let me tell you what I was picked up for, for a bond condition. They said that, uh, that uh, I was supposed to be in Smith County at court. I was in weather for one day. I was working. I was in Weatherford one day in a truck. I drive a truck. They called, my lawyer called me, Clifton Robeson, at like 8.45 in the morning on a cell phone. I was like, what's going on? He said, man, why? where are you? I said, I'm in Weatherford, Texas. I'm at work. He said, man, you need to be here. I said, be here for what? 
He said, we got docket call this morning at 9.30. I said, what do you mean we got docket What the hell do you mean we got docket call at 9.30? You ain't told me nothing. He said, well, Dave, Mr. Dodge just called me and told me. I said, what do you mean he just called you and told me? And there was no way I was going to drive from Rutherford to Tyler in less than an hour and get there. It was going to take me at least three hours. I'm on the other side of Fort Worth, Texas. Uh-huh. And that's, that's, what they, that's what they were doing. They would do that. I was going to docket call at least twice. I know for about three months, I went to docket call twice every week. And I was telling, I talked to the judge and I asked him, I said, anyway, we, I can be notified for this because I'm, I'm, I'm working and I can't keep my job. You know what I mean? Right. I had a supervisor that was, I had a supervisor that was understanding and I had told him what was going on because they didn't believe I was going to trial for a murder case until I took the newspaper and showed them. Uh huh. You know, they, they started looking at me kind of funny then, you know. Oh, I can imagine. Right, because I had to do, I had to give him some kind of explanation why I'm taking off all the time. And he was paying me for a lot of it, you know. Right. Because he started understanding, you know, what was going on. So then they violated your bond and brought you back, and that leads us they to violated the... violated my bond. Yep. And they, the... I, was in, I, I was in Abilene. They violated, they locked me up in Abilene. They let me out in Abilene. I was at work. They locked me up in Abilene. That's how far I was from Dallas. Okay. They let me out. Well, well, they locked me up in Dallas. They took me to Abilene for some reason. They let me go in Abilene. My wife had to come and get me. Then once I got to Dallas, I called my lawyer and told him what was going on. He said, well, I need you to get here uh, as fast as you can Monday morning because we need to talk to the judge because he's violated your uh, bond and uh, they're going to lock you up. So we need to try to figure out some kind of excuse for this to get you back. Well, they locked me. Make a long story short. They put me in jail. And they took my bond. Uh, and I had to bond out again. We had to find somebody to try to bond me out. So how long were you in the Smith County Jail after your bond was violated? Um, um, I was in, I think, like, about five months. My grandmother and my mother were trying to get the money to get me out with my wife. Yeah, some kind of way, they, they were trying to get somebody to get me out. Right. Finally, they got somebody. She got a guy that she knew in the neighborhood. Uh, he had a dude named Terry Henson. She finally talked him into it. He came and got me out. Okay. Because he said, I, he, he believed me too. You know, he said, I know you didn't do this. He said, I don't know what's going on in Smith County. They, they wouldn't do it. I went to actually another bondsman, a guy named Bill Bobbitt, but he works with them. You know, he said he wasn't touching me because he don't deal with guilty people, burning guilty people out and stuff like that, you know. That's irrelevant, but, you know, I got out right. about five months. So in that five months, is at that point, you didn't have a trial scheduled yet, correct? No, I didn't have a trial scheduled then. They were putting it on the back burner again. They, was, they, was just, they just kept delaying and delaying and delaying and delaying it for some reason. Right, and offering you deals along the way? They were offering deals along the way, seeing if they could get me to take a deal. Okay, and so that that leads us to how I ended up in contact with you in the first place, which was someone I'm, I'm sure you Kenny have Snow. some feelings towards was yeah Kenny Snow. Uh, right. Was Kenny's um, it, obviously we we've talked a, l- a little bit about the whole situation with Kenny. Was his testimony that you know that you had tried to get him to lie for you? Is right. was that the trigger to get them to take you back to trial? Because it was like it was just sitting for all this time. It was a few years, right? That's a, it was five years actually. Well, let me see. It was the, it was the next year. That's that's the new testimony that they used in the new trial. Right. That was, that's exactly what that's exactly what triggered it. Okay. He was in the cell. He was in the, he was in the cell with me. We were in a nine man cell. 
and you know everybody know everybody. You can't you can't help but to know everybody. You just nine people in there. Uh-huh. You got to you gonna get to you gonna get to know everybody and you know pretty much kind of trust the person in there which you know you don't have nothing to do but watch TV play chess and smoke cigarettes and drink coffee. Right. That's all you can do in a nine in a nine man cell to get to know everybody. Right. Get to know everybody and know everybody's business. Besides, my face is on TV. It's not three times a week, four times a week. Talking about me in the Smith County Jail. So everybody in the jail knew who I was and what I was in there for. Right. That's and, pretty. That's pretty much what they was going off of. And were you in the same tank as Kenny that whole five months? Right, I was. Okay. Now, he, what he's told me is before you got to Smith County, that David Dobbs and an FBI agent named Dennis Murphy came to visit right. him and told him that you were going to be coming, that they were violating your bond, and that while you were there, that he needed to get something from you to help convict you, because he was facing 25 to life uh, right. for a crime, which, which, by the way, subsequently... I don't, at this point, I don't think that he committed the crimes that he was charged for either, based on the investigation we've done since then. So they had told him that if he could get help get a conviction against you, that they would let him off with probation. And yep, they would give him, they would have given adjudicated probation and help him get out. Right. So then while you guys were in the tank together, uh, he now I was I was trying to piece all this together between what he's telling me and the court documents and the stuff from your your case file. There's a letter in the that was used as evidence in your case that Kenny right. gave to, if I'm understanding correctly, that Kenny gave to the district attorney, and it was in your right. handwriting, uh, where it was right. notes about how someone else had said they were at the house the night that she was murdered. Um, and right. Kenny said that that was a script that you had written for him to memorize. Um, right. And, and I looked at it and it, it does look like it was your handwriting. What was, right. what was that note all about in reality? It was a guy that she was talking to named Francis Johnson. Uh huh. I had told, I had called, I had called my lawyer at the time, Cliff, Cliff Roberson. And I told Cliff, I said, man, they got Francis Johnson over here in the jail. And he's telling me about El Number. He said he was over there that night too, and what had happened with them too. I said, "What?" Do you, and he asked me, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, I'm, I'm writing you a letter right now. Everything that he said, what we talked about, what happened. He didn't. I wrote, I wrote the letter, and I wrote it to my lawyer. I don't know. We, I still don't know how Kenny Snow got it. It was a letter. I was, from, I was mailing it out. Took. Uh, I'm gonna mail it out to Cliff. But when he came over, I was gonna give it to him. He said, "Well, write down everything that y'all talk about." And save it for me. He said, mail it to me. Or, or he said, I'll be there Monday morning to pick it up. I said, okay. After that, it never, it, Monday morning I got out. Make a long story short. Okay. And the letter, and the letter, I never could find the letter. I was like, damn, what happened to that letter? So I explained to him in the office what had happened between me and Francis Johnson. Okay. Which he, which he, uh, uh, they got him to testify. They got him to come to court too and talk about the woman that he was dealing with. But he, and you know they they determined that he didn't have anything to do with it, but um, he told he was uh I had told my uh, lawyers Tom uh, Tom and Cliff Cliff and Robinson everything that he had said. And they, and I, we was looking for a letter. And I said, man, I can't find the letter. Nothing that I got. He okay, said, he's looking for it. That makes more sense now. So so Kenny was taking that letter from you. Uh, Went through my, he he was he was going through my stuff. Like when I when my wife would come visit me. You know, I told he's 
man, you might if I get some coffee, get a cigarette while you're going. I said, man, I don't care. So I'm figuring that's how he did everything, you know, while I was gone because all of the sales were open. Okay. So I would go to visit. I go to visit, and uh, my, my wife and my mother would send me money. I buy cigarettes and coffee and a little food to eat. And, and you know, I told him, you free to go in there and get what you want, man. Everything all right. I mean, you ain't going nowhere. I ain't going nowhere. So go in there and get what you want. Okay. And I need to buy an envelope. I need to buy an envelope and a stamp, man. Write my wife, write my son. I go here, man. It's no problem. He wasn't getting no money or nothing. So, you know, that's how we did it there. Right. It was just nice. Right. So everybody was invited, invited to everybody's stuff, you know. Right. And that, that's starting to make a clear picture of what went on there. Cause it's, you know, he, he, when Kenny was telling me, he was pretty emotional when he was telling me the story, uh, over the phone. He was actually kind of broke down while he was, Telling me because he because he described you as it was that you were a good guy and you guys had become friends while you were in there and so that that kind of makes sense and then but now one thing that was confusing to me and I don't know if it was photocopied or whatever but there were two different copies of that letter that were right. presented at trial that were verbatim do you know, do you know why there were two different copies of it? Yeah, I don't know why there were two different copies of it. I know they had me to. Uh... They asked me would I write a copy. I think that's what it was. Maybe I wrote another copy of it because they wanted me to write another copy of it. Because he had, when he, when he had told them that there was a script, but uh-huh. I had gave him to remember, I guess they, they wanted me to write another copy to see if it was my handwriting. Oh, okay. So I told him, I had already told him, I said, I wrote that. I wrote that to my lawyer. I said, if you look on the top of the letter up here, it has, it has, uh, 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 Tom, uh, Tom McClain and Kristen Robinson on it, but it's, it's, you know, like you know, took a eraser and erased it off. Right. That's they had the letter. They okay. had the letter because uh, Tom said, "How are they using the letter?" And you, the letter was supposed to go to them. Okay. And they took the letter and were using it. The top of if you look at the letter, the top of it is gone. You know what I mean? Right. Where where the name where the name what I had up on there is gone. It's okay. On some of that big on one of those big legal folders. Right. On one of those big legal pads, and the top of the thing is gone where their name was on it. Okay. So he said that's how they. He said that's how they're using the letter because our name is not on it. They're not supposed to use that. That I makes said, well, they, it's, that right, makes more sense now, name. because the second copy of right. it has like the detective signature on the side. So that must have been the one they had you write for handwriting analysis. Right. They had me. Uh, that's they called me in for docket call one day, and they asked me to do that. Then they asked me about another deal. It was a withdrawal. Kenny had asked me one day. He said, "Man, they got the wrong person in here." I think this uh, this stuff is uh, my brother did this. He said I think my brother did this robbery, and they they think we both look alike. We both look exactly alike except he said he had a tooth on this side, gold or silver, and his brother had the other si- or silver or gold on the other side. He said, "Man, I need to send home to get a copy of my ID so they can see that it's me and that's him." I said, "Man, if you can't help me, what you need?" He said, "Man, I need six dollars, man, because I need to send off of this ID." Right. And he told he had, and he had told later on. I guess he had told the detective or something that uh, they had, they wanted him to do something. So he had got a copy of something for six dollars, and they said I was using that to make payments to him uh, for his testimony. Right. They and said he, that I it. right. He told me about that. He said that they had um, because originally, after you had talked to this guy. Uh, Kenny was going to call your lawyer and test because because he, he tells me now that he actually did overhear that conversation uh, with that guy right. that said that he was there that night and right. originally he was there. yeah and originally he said he contacted or you had helped him whatever get in contact with your lawyer 
to testify on your right. behalf. And then he says after uh-huh. that is when Dobbs then found out about it and then told him right. that if he testified for you, that they were going to hit him with 99 years. And then that's when they cool. got the idea of the, the plan was constructed for him to take the letter and testify against you and say that you had you had asked him to do that for you. Right. Make it, make it, I mean, be blunt about it. He came, he came, he had finally told, he had finally told, uh, 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 Tom McClain that he said, man, I said, man, if I test, if I tell y'all, or if I get on the stand that he said he's gonna fuck me in a hundred ways to one. That's exactly what he told him. Back then he told him that. He got up, right. If he get up there and testify, the same thing they did to him when I went back on bench one. They told him if he get up there and testify, they were gonna fire two counts of perjury on him. And give him uh, 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 99 years on both counts because it's aggravated purge. Yeah, and that was, uh, and what you're talking about, what you're calling the bench warrant, is when you had filed a motion for a new trial based on the affidavit right. that he had written for you saying that right. it was all bullshit, basically. And he told me that, too. He said that uh, he was ready to come testify for you. I think he actually was at the courthouse, wasn't he? He, he was there. He was in the jail. They went When they brought me back from TDC, they brought him back the same day. Yep, and he they said that I, he said that they came in and told him that if he testifies for you, that they're going to charge him with perjury and they're going to yeah they're going to lock him up for the rest of his life for perjury. Right, uh, and that's why he ended up backing out and didn't testify. Um, but you guys had exactly. the affidavit, but he didn't testify. Uh, and he had also right. said that getting back to that six dollars that they had told after he had got the letter after they threatened him. That if he testified for you, they were going to send him up for 99 years. That right. he needed to flip that and testify against you with it. They told him that he needed to find some way to get you to give him some money so that right. they could say that you paid for his testimony. Right. And that's, that's, and, that's what he was trying to get. Yeah. So he said the whole plan with, um, he couldn't remember what it was for. He said he told you you needed money for pictures or for something, but you gave him some money right. and he took that receipt and then gave it to Dobbs to show him that here, you can use this. Uh, to show right. that he gave, so that you you were going to pay him six dollars to uh right. to, to, to lie lie for you. So actually, while I was out um, and I got out the second time when I was at home, my partner had called me. He was in jail, and I said, "Yeah, man, you called me a couple times uh, on the weekend." He had called me, and he was telling me about the dude, Kenny Snow, and, and uh, I, you know, I I could have been all right with this guy. I told him, I said, "Man, if you need anything or need me to call anybody, do a thing." Here's my number. I said, give me about a week to get sale at the house, man. I said, my wife, she's kind of funny about people calling me, well, calling from jail besides me. Right. So I told him, so he, so he had called me a couple of times, and I was talking to him, and then I said, man, everything just this, this, this. And so I got to talk to him, and my other partner called me. He said, man, did you talk to Kenny? Did you talk to Kenny Snow on the phone? I said, yeah, man, I let him call. I'll be trying to do it or something for him, call his family for him. He said, man, quick message. He said, help me to quit. And in his words, man, stop fucking with him. Cause he's trying to mess you over. I said, what you mean you're trying to mess me over? He said, man, this dude, we was in the, uh, uh, investigation tank together. And man, he's over here talking to David Dobbs and some other dude talking, talking about he got you on the phone. He talking to you on the phone and he trying to, he trying to, uh, get you to do stuff for him. He said, they want to set you up and everything. I said, what you talking about? So what? the next time the dude, he, uh, my partner's name, his name was Victor Searles. What was the, what was that last name? Me. Victor. Hi? What was the last name? Victor what? Victor Searles, that was just, he was a friend of mine. Right. He's I thought, not a police officer. He was, I want to try to get, how do you spell his last name? Do you remember? S-I-R-L-E-S. 
Okay, I'm going to try to get a hold of him because he may be, if he was witnessing those conversations, that'd be uh, somebody else good to have on the line. Yeah, they were, uh, they were in, they were in the sales stuff. He was doing him and another guy, and he was stealing their stuff, and they said he was going around the jail trying to get information on t- certain people to just, just try to use so to get him out of jail, you know what I mean? Right. To get information. They said he was doing that. Uh, for the DA, that's that's what I saw. all he was doing in the day, and I didn't believe. Cause I said, "Man, why is he doing this?" But you know, I was I was kind of naive. But then I, then I started putting two to two together. And then my lawyer, uh, Clifton Robson, called me. He said, "Man, Ed, he said, you man, have one guy, minute left." This guy Kenny Snow said that he called you. He told Davey Dobbs, and he said, "Man, they trying to use him against you." I said, "Man, you serious?" And then I started putting it together. Then right. Well, hey Ed, we're gonna we're gonna run out of time. Um, I'm gonna I'll okay. shoot you an email on JPay and let you know when we can talk again. But okay. keep the faith, brother. We're gonna get you out of there. Kenny's working with us. Okay. We've got the DNA, so just hold tight, keep the faith, and I'll be in touch. Thank you for everything. Thank You're you welcome. for everything. You're welcome. Take care, bud. The caller has hung up. Hello, it's me. I was wondering if after all these years you'd like to meet To go over everything they say that The Smith County Justice System has destroyed countless lives. Kenny Snow and Edward Aids are just two of many. These were two men who were bullied by the system and like so many others, formed a bond of friendship while sitting in the Smith County Jail. Kenny Snow cracked under the pressure of the Smith County justice system, and he turned his back on a man who had become his friend. I spoke with him this week, and from the other side of the state, in another Texas prison, Kenny asked me to send a message to Edward Eights. I'd like to tell uh, Mr. H that I'm, I'm sorry for what happened. It wasn't about something that I wanted to do. Wrong was wrong by his right, so when it happened, I knew I had to make it right, so... I went to my people and told them what had happened and that they was more interested in me fighting. So then I wrote his attorney. Hello. How are you? It's so typical of me to talk about myself. I'm sorry. I hope you will. If I can help him. In any way I can, I'll be a piece of myself and I'm all I'm okay with. It's no secret that the both of us are running out of time. So I 
always been a fighter, but without your help, I was about ready to give up. But now, I'm in it to win it again. And, and not only for me and Edward A, but it's other men in Smith County that's been messed over. The destruction brought down by this situation goes far beyond just Kenny and Ed. Their lives have been destroyed. Their families' lives have been torn apart. Kenny Snow has made mistakes. There's no denying that. But as he's told me many times, he's always been a fighter. And he's ready to fight now. Not for just himself, but for Ed as well. And for everyone else that's been destroyed by this corrupt system. Ed Aids has always had a strong support system, but it's a support system without resources. But I believe with all of you behind me that after 18 years of sitting in that prison, Ed finally has a chance to go home to his family who loves him and misses him. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating our theme song and all of the scoring music. The song that you heard in closing was Adele's Hello, performed by a musician named Taps Mugadza. I was listening to Taps' YouTube channel today, and I just felt like that song captured what I was feeling about this episode. Taps has an incredible story. He grew up in an orphanage in Zimbabwe, and he didn't even speak at school until he was 15 years old. But when he did find his voice, as you heard, it was amazing. If you want to hear more from Taps, check out his YouTube channel, Taps Mugadza. That's T-A-P-S-M-U-G-A-D-Z-A. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo, and thanks to all of you for staying engaged and fighting this battle with me. I'll leave you today with Johnny Rose's song, Years Lost. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And this has been Truth and Justice. Thank you.